The Adventures of Randon Rockseeker, Episode 10. We left the Shrine of Timora. The party decided not to waste any time, and we gathered our gear for a trip down the Tribor Trail. By me estimation, it would take us two nights to get to Coneyberry, so we had to be prepared for a few nights in the wild. The Tribor were little more than a cart path, really. We had to keep ourselves on high alert, as there were numerous places where ambush was more than likely. To me surprise, our first day were uneventful. We found a good spot to make camp. Garland offered to be camp cook. Good thing, too. I don't think I'd trust anything that any of the others prepared, and that included myself. We set up camp, ate what Garland prepared, some kind of stew. It weren't too bad. We arranged two-hour watches. My shift were very quiet, and I were looking forward to a bit of rest. After me prayers, that is. I awoke Lewis so he could take his shift. I must have been asleep for a couple of hours because we were all awoken by Virgil raising the alarm. Having served in a mercenary army, shaking off sleep in a hurry were a skill I mastered long ago. My companions were not so practiced, so it were me who saw what Virgil had raised the alarm about. Into the midst of our camp, came stumbling a very large, very ugly ogre. The beasts were drawn toward us by the smell of the cooking. It carried with it a large wooden club, more tree than club, really. The creature came at me with that tree and swung. The club connected with me, hit me right in the shoulder. My left arm went numb. I could still move it, sorta, but I were glad it didn't hit me on the other side, or me hammer would have gone flying. Virgil came out of nowhere with her short sword, and she stuck the brute in a calf that roared in pain. Virgil faded back into the shadows quick as that. By this time, Lewis had roused himself, and he came roaring in, only to snag his foot on a log sending him stumbling and swinging wide. Barion lifted his hand, and out of it came a blue streak of frost and ice. The ray went over the ogre's head. Perhaps if he had not done so while still reclining, he may have hit the thing. Bah, wizards. I saw a flash of fire and thought, Oh, now what? But, to my delight, it were Garland with Talon. What none of us knew was when Talon was wielded in combat, it looked like it were a flame. It were impressive. Not nearly as impressive as the fighter wielding it, though. Garland struck the ogre full in the chest. It roared in serious pain from such a critical hit. I didn't want to trust me hammer on this brute. So I called upon me deity and brought down a spiritual light. 
The divine radiance scorched the ogre, and then it turned on me again. The big beast brought its club up over its head, and it roared as it came down upon me. I kept my wits about me, and timed it right, so that when the club were a boat to cade me head in, I stepped to the side, and the brute buried the club in the dirt. The ogre were surprised that it didn't connect, and to be honest, so were I. Virgil appeared behind the creature and buried her short sword in the same leg as earlier, and this did no please the ogre one bit. Lois found his footing at last, and connected solidly with his sword, with a nasty wound in the ogre's side. I had absolutely no idea how this thing was still standing, but then... Ogres are tough beasties. The elf finally decided to rise from his bedroll and launched a barrage of magic missiles into the creature. Each one hit with precision, but somehow this thing still stood. It did sway quite a bit. In fact, it swayed right into Garland and Talon. It being stooped over with its club in the dirt and the thing being too stupid to let go of it, the monster swayed at just the right angle and Talon pierced its left eye and scrambled what was left of the brains of that thing. And down it came in a heap. Four hundred pounds of dead ogre. Nasty beastie that, I said. Anybody hurt? Not hearing any cries for help, I said, Good, because I gotta get this arm put to rights. The arm weren't broken, but the shoulder were dislocated. This is gonna hurt, I said to myself. Oi, Lois, I said out loud, I need ye. Lois came over, and I instructed him in the proper way to put a shoulder back in place. The big human looked doubtful. But he did as instructed. I took a small leather strap and put it between my teeth. Lewis performed the action perfectly. And I was right. It bloody well hurt. I grunted as I bit down on the strap. Thank you, lad. I said when I could manage words. Good thing that ogre didn't hit me there again. Or I'd be a one-armed cleric. We all settled back down to our rest, and there were no more intrusions that night. The next day dawned overcast and cool, good traveling weather. The day passed, and all we met was a lonely gnome trader traveling toward Fandlin. Greetings, gentles all, he said with a flourish of his wide-brimmed hat. What news from the western edge of the Tribor? He was a happy sort, though his accent were thick, and that's saying something coming from me. Lewis answered the odd little gnome. Hail, and well met, good merchant. I am Lewis, Lord of Fandolin. My companions and I are on a pair of quests that should provide a level of security along this trail. How has the travelling been? for you. Inwardly I rolled me eyes at all the highfalutin language, nobles. But the gnome took it in stride, 
replying, Well met, my lord. There was no lord of Fandolin when last I was in your fair town. I do remember a fat idiot in the townmaster's hall and a group of rowdy brigands running roughshod over the local townspeople. Well, good merchant, the red brands have been disbanded, and their leader wa has been taken to Waterdeep for trial. Fandolin is once again free of tyranny. Please, good gnome, what name may I call you by? The gnome took a deep breath and said, I am Zephbar, Noctonic, Fizzlebang, Big Noodle, Nimble Digit. And I am at your service. You may call me Zeph for short. With obvious relief, Lewis said, Thank you, Zeph. Yes, you will find much has changed in Fandolin, and all for the better. Wonderful, said Zeph. You must let me repay this good news with some of my own, though it isn't so good. On my way past Coneyberry, I was accosted by a pair of rather stupid orcs. I call them stupid because they tried to rob me. Little did they know, but there's more to this humble merchant than meets the eye. He winked at Lewis. Yes, said Lewis. We have heard of these raiders and are set out to see, them, see to them. You have my gratitude for assisting us with this quest. I'm sure the rest of the ne'er-do-wells will meet similar ends. Even better, Zeph cheered. Well, good sir, I could talk all day and into the night, but alas, I must attend to my business. Very well, replied Lewis. I do hope to see you in Fandolin often. With that, we kept moving in our respective directions. I walked up to Lewis and said, Ne'er-do-wells? I'd be sure no one has ever referred to orc raiders as ne'er-do-wells, your lordship. We made camp that night in the ruins of Coneyberry, because we made good time, but it was late. The ruins consisted of a dozen or so former homes and businesses built just at the edge of Neverwinter Wood. Garland had been appointed as camp cook by all of us. His stew was quite good, and no one wanted to try any good dwarven food. After evening meal, we once again set up two-hour watches. As I was still nursing a bad shoulder, the others agreed to give me the night off to rest, an honor I was more than happy to accept. I weren't sure how long I had been asleep in my bedroll, but... I were rudely awoken by shouts of alarm by Barian. I shook off me sleep and focused on what was going on. There were a half a dozen 
horrid little creatures that looked like a cross between a bat and an oversized mosquito. They're called Sturges. They were not very big, and it looked like an easy fight. How wrong I was. The Sturges flew around us and tried to swoop down on each of us. Virgil was the first to be hit, and rather than just hit and run, the ugly creature stuck to, his, to the halfling and buried its needle-like nose into her shoulder. Barion and Lewis also had the creatures affixed to them. I had two dive at me, but they missed and flew off. Garland was able to bring Talon to bear, and he neatly cleaved one in two. Perfectly equal parts. Show off, I said. I summoned me divine energy and roasted one that would attack me. Virgil was squealing the sturge were sucking her blood. Both Lewis and Berrien had the same problem, and I soon joined them. The free-flying sturge landed on me shoulder. Yes, that shoulder. And promptly stuck its long, skinny mouth into me neck. The pain were unlike anything I had ever experienced. I had been cut, bashed, burned, beaten, bitten, and any number of other injuries. None of them had prepared me for the sucking bite of a sturge. Get off me, ye blood-sucking monster! I cried out. Lewis managed to grab hold of the one on him and heave it away. The thing immediately took to wing and circled overhead, looking for an opening. Barion was having a more difficult time. Garland charged over to the elf and sheared the sturge's mouth from its face. The creature did no live much longer after that. Virgil exercised the sturge from her shoulder by jabbing the thing with the pointy end of her short sword and it fell to the ground, dead. As the sturge attacked me were more behind me than not, I could not properly reach the thing. But I could see one circling overhead. I drew in me spiritual power and called down the holy radiance. Sadly, the sturge in me neck chose that moment to burrow just a little deeper, and the holy bolt flew wide at me target. The free sturge swooped down on Lewis, and rather than flesh, the creature was met with steel. Lewis hacked a wing off, and the sturge landed in the dirt. Garland ran over to me and said, Hold still, Randon. I froze as still as stone, and I felt Talon graze me neck to free me of the parasite. The encounter left us all winded, and four of us injured. I chose to speak a healing word, and my deity's magic washed over all four of us. It didn't heal us all fully, but it did take most of the pain away. It also gave me some relief in the bad shoulder. Thankfully, it were Garland's turn to take watch, so the rest of us were able to crawl back into our bedrolls. The rest of the night were silent. The morning dawned clear and 
cool. And after a quick breakfast, we went into the woods, seeking for Agatha the Banshee. There were a trail through the trees going in the direction the good sister told us to follow. The forest grew dark and still. The further we went, and the air began to get noticeably colder, too. We rounded a bend in the trail, and we found a dome-like shelter made of woven, warped branches of trees standing close together. In the middle of the dome was a low doorway leading inside. We stood outside for a moment and briefly discussed what we needed to do. Lois began. The good sister told us that Agatha was once an elf, so perhaps our elf should do the talking. I agree, said Barian, if only to keep Randon from putting his clumsy foot in his loud mouth. Virgil could no resist a giggle at that. I winked at her and said, Well, at least this pulled your pointy nose out of the book you've been reading. We all entered the hovel and found a home of sorts. There were a few pieces of furniture, some shelves, chests, a table, and a reclined couch. All of the furniture were of old elven craft probably quite valuable. We stood in the middle of the hut and looked around for its resident. After a brief time, the air grew very cold, and a powerful feeling of dread gripped us all. Then a cold, pale light flickered in the air, and it very quickly took the form of a female elf. Her, her hair and robes gently waved on an unseen spectral wind. Any beauty she may have had once had been replaced by a hateful scowl that twisted her features. You foolish mortals, Agatha snarled. What do you want here? Do you not know it is death to invade my privacy? I had never seen anything like it before. It were both beautiful and horrid at the same time. I could no take me eyes off the banshee, even though I desperately wanted to. What I couldn't see was Lewis, Garland, and Virgil were also as transfixed as I. It were a good thing we gave the job to Berrien, because he were the only one not so affected. You must pardon my companions, he said. They are not accustomed to being in the presence of one as powerful and fair as yourself, dear cousin. Agatha turned her gaze upon the elf, and she said, Who are you? How dare you consider yourself my kin? My name is Berrien Nalo. I am a devotee of Ogma, and I am on a mission of some importance from Sister Grael of the Shrine of Timora. 
I know of this sister, Agatha said. She was here some days ago when I chose not to reveal myself to her. Well then, Baron replied, I am deeply honoured that you have chosen to grace us with your august presence. Thank you, dear cousin. You are indeed a polite one, the Banshee said. I like you. Perhaps I will help you. Or perhaps I shall keep you. Baron did not respond to the not-so-veiled threat. Instead, he capitalized on the compliment. I am overwhelmed with joy that I have been deemed worthy of your gracious favor, and I have brought you a gift. A gift? Agatha said. What kind of gift? Baron continued. A precious gift that pales in comparison to your presence and person. Then he held forth the bejeweled comb given to us by the good sister. Agatha saw the comb, and her features softened, if only a little. Where did you get that comb? Baron replied. It came into my possession during the course of my adventures, and I have been told it is of personal value to you, dear cousin. It most certainly is, the Banshee said. I never thought it possible to hold it again. Baron held it forth and said, Then this is yours, and I am very glad it has been returned to its rightful owner. The Banshee plucked the comb from Baron's hand and where her fingers brushed his palm rose a frosty mist. To his credit, Baron did not cry out or recoil, even though he must have been in some amount of pain from the frost. Agatha admired the comb, and we could see a glimpse of her former beauty. In repayment, I shall answer a single question. Ask me whatever you wish, as I know that you seek many things. I am searching for the whereabouts of a spell book that once belonged to the great wizard, Bowgentle, Baron replied. Agatha gave him a cold smile of amusement. You seek a powerful book. I once owned that book over a century ago. I traded it to a necromancer named Tisirnoth. He was from the city of Erebor, in the Sunset Vale, in the western heartlands of Faerun. 
more than that, I cannot tell you. Thank you most graciously, Barian said. You have helped this humble wizard take a step in a lifelong quest. You have my deepest gratitude. Now we shall trouble you no more. Agatha turned away without another word, enraptured by the calm. I shook myself out of the ah I had felt and followed my companions out the door. The further we got from the hovel, the better we all felt. But I weren't really ready to talk about the experience. In fact, this is the first time I've ever told that particular story.